Behold! The sword of power. Excalibur. Welcome to the Oh Gosh, Oh Golly, Oh Wow podcast, the podcast where we talk about the Marvel comic series Excalibur and nothing but Excalibur every week for 126 plus weeks. This week, we're whiling away romantic moments in Paris, on the seashore, and in an alley behind a pub in Excalibur number 81, beginnings, middles, and endings. Excalibur number 81 was originally published in September 1994, and the creative team is Scott Lobdell and Chris Cooper on writing, Paul Abrams and Jose Kleber de Mora Jr. on pencils, Andrew Pepoy, Keith Campaign, and W.C. Karani on inks, Chris Mathis on colors, Dave Sharp on letters, and Susan Gaffney and Bob Harris on editing. I think they have an okay time. How do you know? I mean, how do I know I know? Because they... Yes, because they... How do you know that they're really... What are you saying? That they fake orgasm? It's possible. Get out of here. Why? Most women at one time or another have faked it. Well, they haven't faked it with me. How do you know? Because I know. Oh. Right. That's right. I forgot. You're a man. What is that supposed to mean? Nothing. It's just that all men are sure it never happened to them, and most women at one time or another have done it, so you do the math. You don't think that I can tell a difference? No. Get out of here. Welcome back to the further past-slash-future adventures of the Excala crew, plus Charles and Moira, whose affair is apparently a central part of this book now. I am one of your hosts, Dr. Anna Papard. I like talking about sexy, gendery things in comics and pop culture, and I definitely like talking about romance. Whether this issue qualifies remains to be seen. <laughs> I am also co-project lead of Sequential Scholars, where we are wrapping up a series of threads on Indigenous representation in comics and getting set to debut some Best of 2022 lists. I'm also, as always, Kurt Wagner's unofficial PR manager, and he's not in this one. Again, Lasai, I'll endure. Anyway, I am joined, as always, by Mav. Please recount your past-present. Mine eyes have seen the coming of the glory of it, and I stopped doing this bit because, like, why would you continue if you're going to start a bit in, like, the first caption and then just, oh, forget that they, for, that you did, that you were doing it. <laughs> That's a thing that happened in this comic, and it <laughs> bugged me. Like, it's literally the first thing in this 
comic and it bugged me and it just ruined my entire experience from then on out. Wow. Um, it's the worst. Wow. It didn't actually. Cause um, I, I have interesting thoughts on this one that I, that I actually, I'm going to pretend that um, it's a good, it's Christmas time. It's the end of the year. I'm in finals. So I'm, I'm tired, but I'm coming into this with like some tiredness and I'm going to be rosy and cheery and just, you know, if I don't like the story, I'm just going to write a better one. So that's where I'm at today. But hi, my name is Christopher <laughs> Maverick. You can call me Mav and I'm the co-host of this show and another one called Vox Popcast. And I study art and pop culture and, and stuff like that. And where do I work? Oh yeah, I'm a, a teaching assistant professor at the University of Pittsburgh. It's loopy. It's finals time. If you think I'm screwed up, if you've listened to the, to like the last four shows to how burnout Andrew is and like he's got to go next. So um, I'm just going to turn it over now. <laughs> <laughs> I said this off mic, but I did mention that I should say it on mic for the benefit of our listeners that I'm very tired today because I stayed up way too late reading a Lucifer body swap fan fiction. And so my tiredness is completely self-imposed. Wasn't even a good story. Wasn't worth it. Just had to see how it ended. Uh, yeah, so no excuses. Like, like I'm literally, like, yeah, like this is like literally my job. It's just the way finals work is like, I mean, again, I love my students. I love my job. But like when you have, you know, a hundred undergrads who are like depending on you yeah. for or from their perspective for their future livelihood. And of mm -hmm. those hundred, you know, 15 of them maybe didn't plan the best uh, in the world. So they've got a lot of email, a lot of questions at the end. And it's a lot of work. At the, yeah. it's, this, this is the hell. This is finals week. It's the hell week. So that's where I'm at. I, I fully concede you are tired for much better reasons than I am. I don't know if anyway, it's better. Yours um, sounds more fun. <laughs> 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 it was fun. Andrew, please lead us down the winding roads that led you to this place. Hello, I'm Dr. J. Andrew Deman. I am a uh, lecturer at St. Trump's University and co-project lead at Sequential Scholars. I am also a bald, middle-aged, sleep-deprived professor who knows a lot about the X-Men, living within a committed, <laughs> committed monogamous relationship with an awesome lady who is not a bird. And I therefore am not sure how to react to reading a story about a bald, middle-aged, sleep-deprived professor who knows a lot about the X-Men, living within a committed monogamous relationship with an awesome lady who is a bird having a hall pass with an old flame in a way that is depicted very romantically like do i clap at the end of this or i don't know i have thoughts there too i got like so much yeah there's a lot there's a lot i tweeted out one of the panels and definitely got some like this is a lot responses we've got stuff to talk about that was very well done andrew <laughs> I was just clutching my face. Amazing. Um, okay, we are joined this week by a truly excellent guest who I've been wanting to get on the pod for a while and was gracious enough to accept an invite that was far more last minute than it should have been to appear on today's episode. The pod is absolutely overjoyed to welcome Brian Bove. Welcome, Brian. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. We are so excited to chat with you. I know you're going to have lots of thoughts about this one. I will give you a little bio so our guests know where you're coming from. So Brian Bove is a PhD candidate at Bowling Green State University. His academic interests include comic studies, pop culture, and young adult fiction. In addition to his many excellent publications in places like the Routledge Companion to Gender and Sexuality in Comic Book Studies, he's currently working on his dissertation, which is an auto-ethnographic critical comic that focuses on shifting societal perceptions of queerness as illness as represented in X-Men narratives through the lenses of queer and disability studies. Sounds amazing. When he's not busy drawing funny little comics for his dissertation, he's drawing funny little comics about his life, hanging out with his ham loaf of a dog, Boki, and creating really useful lists of things, like a definitive ranking of songs from fictional singers and movies and TV shows. Also sounds amazing. Want to talk to you about all of that, but first, let's do uh, 
comics origin stories when someone's new to the pod. We like to talk to them a little bit about how they discovered comics and how they fell in love with them. And I also want to talk about your affection for X-Men, but maybe those are part of the same. So tell us, Brian, when did you first get into comics? Okay, yeah. Um, And I will say, I feel so bad that you were all still, you know, finishing your semesters because mine ended last week. So this is like (laughs) a wonderful start to my winter break. Um, (laughs) But since I'm a PhD student, it's really not a break because I'm just constantly in the middle of stuff. Uh, (laughs) But um, I would say I first got into comics probably uh, because of the like Archie digests that they had at the supermarket checkout. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, when I was little, going to the supermarket with my mom or my aunts and uh, asking if I could get one of those. And, you know, from there, buying different trade paperbacks of like Garfield and Calvin and Hobbes, reading all of the comics in the Sunday papers, um, and then encountering comics characters through other media. So uh, when I was little, I loved Batman Returns. And Mm. even though though it wasn't like a good uh, movie uh, or, you know, critics didn't think of... It seems like we're a supportive audience of that movie, but we're of the right age for it. So. Oh, no, no, no. I was that. I didn't mean Batman Returns wasn't a good movie. I was going to say <laughs> Batman and Robin which uh. was another movie I loved. Uh. That was not a good movie. Very campy, um, but I loved it. And then X-Men, the animated series, of course. And I think it was it was really in the year 2000 when I kind of got into X-Men, like just, you know, headfirst, just full in because, you know, that's when the first movie came out. And then also the animated series uh, X-Men Evolution started that year. And then I believe it was either the end of that year or sometime in the beginning of 2001, I went on a trip to Universal Studios in Florida with my aunts and they bought me a bunch of these essential X-Men collections there. So I read Chris Claremont's run and that was my gateway drug kind of to the comics. From there, I kind of started, I started going to the comic book store every week with my aunt sis and I was reading current comics like at the time generation x was probably my favorite but it ended pretty soon after i started collecting comics so um (laughs) i bought all those back issues and then um that same i think 2001 grant morrison's new x-men started and uh peter milligan and mike allred's x-force so i was really into all of the x men or X books at the time and it was very much tied into because I was 13 in 2000 and so it was a lot of my interest was kind of subconsciously tied to my own identity construction and my understanding of my queerness or you know like the beginnings of my understanding of that and yeah I don't know that was a very long answer <laughs> no not at all I want to unpack some of that a little bit more and of note that there was kind of a shift in Marvel Comics you know right around 2001 to sort of the a behind the scenes thing but to loosen up a little bit on some of the rules they had previously had about gay characters and that's part of the reason we saw North Star showing up on the team again and you know slow slow progress but still it was an interesting time for a variety of reasons um, but yeah I want to talk to you about your affection for X-Men a little bit more and I want to talk you, to you about your critical practice as well I mean let's do the X-Men question first I mean you mentioned themes of queerness in X-Men but I'd love to hear you talk about that a little bit more I mean what drew you to this franchise to this set of characters in particular 
particular. Yeah, I was definitely drawn to like, their status as marginalized individuals, that they were these outsiders, but still fighting for the good of society. I just, I found it very impactful, I suppose, that they, you know, they never gave up. They always persevered and always tried to, you know, do what was best for everyone. And I, I just really liked the positivity in the message. And it, you know, it kind of helped me get through a lot of hard times when I was yeah. a teenager. And also just some of the stories are just so wild and fun. That, um, <laughs> and also so like, you know, like I said, Generation X was one of my favorites. And it was like a, it was like a WB drama, you know, yeah. so um, <laughs> I really enjoyed that. <laughs> I mean, that makes total sense to me. I mean, I feel like we do so much. I mean, in our show, we do so much critical analysis, and we can be very critical of things. And then in the discourse of comic studies, too, where, you know, superhero comics have been re- overrepresented, but also diminished in various ways ways but I don't know remembering that sort of basic thing that these stories do of like inspiring us and helping us which I know we've all felt in our lives I always feel like it's important to emphasize that as well I mean they still help me I mean it's the reason I keep reading them let me ask you about your your academic work though a little bit like one of the things that's so fascinating about your academic work on comics is that you know as we mentioned in your bio you do this auto-ethnographic work and I mentioned the Routledge Companion to Gender and Sexuality in Comic Book Studies you have a really wonderful sort of critical comic book that you did in that collection about Iceman coming out as gay and sort of the reparative reading of that and sort of working through it within the history of queer representation in comics. What draws you to making comics about comics? Like what draws you to this as a way to engage with comic studies? I really like to play with the idea of like what academic scholarship can be. You know, I enjoy writing, but it's not always a straightforward paper is not always the best way to present certain pieces of work. I love creating critical comics because I want the reader to engage with the material in a way that I did and kind of explore my, I guess, just, you know, get to know the material in the way that I did and like see my experience through that comic lens rather than just the written word. I also think that so much can be presented to the reader visually whether it's like with line weight or color or shapes and I don't know it's just it also is a it's a bit of a um, mental wellness practice as well just getting through the pandemic I drew so much in like 2020 and it was because it it helped me to just not not to say that it helped me not think about the world around me but at least gave me some kind of escape or solace when the world around me was too much so yeah there's there's that piece to it as well. Can I ask you a little bit more about the autoethnographic aspect of that? Like one of the things that really stood out to me in your Iceman piece was that a lot of it felt like trying to capture your own gaze sort of through that piece, like both situating it, you know, in critical historical context, but there are also sort of redrawn images of Bobby sort of in that piece and stuff that feel like they're about bringing readers into sort of your perception of these comics and the way that you see these comics. And that really fascinates it's me as somebody who talks about comics gazes a lot. So I mean, yeah, like, why is it important to you to kind of bring your personal experience with you when you're doing this kind of work? I do want people to see it through my gaze, like through my eyes, especially, you know, when I'm talking about a queer reader's experience, I want them to be able to experience it that way. Mm -hmm. Um, I love putting in random pop culture references, sometimes like ones that are, you know, not, oh my gosh, what's the word? Anachronistic. Uh, so I like to put in references like that.
that, especially to other queer pop culture, whether it's through like music or memes or, you know, just different things floating around on the internet. So yeah, I like people to experience it the way that I do and try to place them in my head because it's messy, weird place. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I like how that relates to kind of ideas of queer temporality and kind of creating identities sort of out of a melange of influences and stuff. And comics are so great for that, right? Because just as you're saying, you can represent (laughs) different spaces of time and place on the same page and make sure that those things get kind of interpreted like sort of together, but relationally by the readers. And I really felt like that come across in your Iceman piece for sure. Thank you. (laughs) Uh, I could talk to you more about autoethnography. It's a pet topic of mine and I really love that. But um, I also really want to hear your thoughts about this comic. So we'll probably get back to some of this stuff and certainly going to be talking about gazes and romance in this particular comic because we ostensibly have a lot of that. I'm going to keep saying ostensibly. We'll we'll talk about our mileage on it. I want to like this one too. I'm bringing positive energy today. I hope that comes across. (laughs) It's Christmas, Anna. Have some Christmas cheer. I do. I do. Believe me. Been up all night reading fan fiction. I'm in a romancy mood. So let's do this. Um, I know we've got lots of lovely listeners reading along with the pod. We definitely let you change out of your quote unquote lab gear before absconding with you to Paris. Speaking of reliving the past, let's remind ourselves of what went down in this one with one of our patented plot summaries. Excalibur number 81 opens with everyone's favorite big blonde bland hunk of man, Britannic, recalling his traumatic ordeal lost in the time stream, an event that happened, as you'll recall, off panel between Excalibur 67 and 68, finally getting back to that. He tells Megan how he was changed by his experience, and she seems to understand. Elsewhere, known robot hater Kitty is sitting in a pub with Douglock, discussing Doug Ramsey's past with the new mutants. But she doesn't make much headway getting Douglock to remember or feel anything. Eventually, she gets annoyed enough to storm out. Meanwhile, in Paris, Charles Xavier and Moira are rekindling their bonds in the wake of Moira revealing that she's the first human infected with the legacy virus. Moira is grateful for the gesture, but wishes Charles had given her a chance to change out of an outfit she ludicrously describes as her lab clothes. Back at the English coast, Megan walks with Britannic along the cliffs of the lighthouse they once lived in. Megan then asks him what will happen to them in the future, prompting a riotous laugh from Britannic and subsequent mansplaining about the nature of time. Basically, (laughs) it's impossible to know the future because there are too many possible futures. This doesn't deter Megan, who reaffirms her love for this totally different person who she understands for reasons. Back at the bar, Kitty sulks in an alley and encounters some thugs beating up a person selling flowers. She beats them up in turn, and in the wake of the fight, Douglock finds her and says he still doesn't remember the people or events in the photograph, but wants what they have, a sense of togetherness, something he's missing since separating from the phalanx. Maybe it's the start of something? In Paris, Moira and Xavier continue their love language of violating the minds of other people for their own amusement, convincing a restaurant full of people that Moira is actually Princess Diana, then giving Moira a confidence boost by snooping on the mind of a waiter who thinks she's hot. Later, Moira trips on a stone and tumbles into Charles's lap. They kiss and then laugh it off, though Moira says she knows there will always be a place in their hearts where they love each other. All right, Brian, I'm eager to hear your first impressions of this comic. What particularly stood out to you about this one? Anything that you're particularly eager to talk about? I was sad that there was no Kurt because I don't, like, my only understanding of Excalibur is, like, Kurt as a swashbuckling hero. Um, So the lack of that was a little sad. I'm excited to talk about all of the romance. Um, I love cheesiness. I love rom-coms. This this issue felt very much like filler. Um, I definitely don't know the context of 
some of the stuff. Um, That's there but is I am excited. There really there, isn't no, that much context. No context. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there, there's, there's, don't worry about it. Um, I am excited to uh, talk about a little bit of like the context of like what was happening in the greater like X world oh, and sure. also in just in 1994 in general because I was just doing some you know as I was reading the issue certain things came up and I was like oh what about yeah so it it led me down a few different paths that I'm interested in talking about and then also like the cover I'm excited to the, my first impression oh. like really was just the cover yeah well, I tell love, us tell um, us about the cover we can talk about that now yeah so I it's by Ken Lashley who I love and I led Killa on Instagram I I didn't realize that it was by him so I was excited about that and also Dan Panosian it's uh, you know I guess since this is not a visual medium it is uh, <laughs> an image against a white background of Professor Xavier in his classic you know the yellow X-Men animated series chair and Moira is kind of sitting atop it embracing him in a passionate kiss I suppose um, <laughs> so I, I have no idea what's going on in Charles Love Life you know at this point in the comics but I was mostly like oh awesome we're getting a Charles and Moira issue um, yeah I, I love that Charles gets a romance and you know that uh, he gets to express his sexuality because often characters with disabilities even today still don't so yeah. that part is exciting also like just looking at the cover Moira has this kind of maroonish uh blouse with like a matching headband and you know charles has the the red blanket covering his legs and then the red in the x insignia on his on the shoulder of his jacket and it was just giving me like full-on taylor swift red vibes um (laughs) uh, so i was just thinking about that yes i'm sorry this is where i admit publicly that i love taylor swift um although i've done that in many public (laughs) space already so it doesn't matter um (laughs) but yeah i was fully thinking about red after that and just how that album also plays with like memory and stuff so yeah anyway that was my first impression uh <laughs> yeah i want to talk more obviously about charles and romance and yeah definitely take your point on charles's sexuality and we have to remind our listeners that when johnny walker was on a few episodes ago this was the cover that he got ken lashley to sign at the comic book convention when he was a kid an adorable story that he told but um but yeah eager to get back to that stuff and talk about the charles and moira romance within um but let me get some first impressions from andrew and mav first mav how are you feeling about this one you said you want to be positive oh it's great it's the best book ever okay um <laughs> i might have i might have done some massaging in um <laughs> in my head of, of of what's going on in this story i really 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 like superhero comics where not a lot of superheroing goes on like in my favorite stories like there's these people with godlike powers and they never use them they just kind of they kind of go around and um and just like you have regular people problems and then the story is about how even having mutant powers doesn't really solve your regular people problems i was i was a big fan of um of the comic book preacher where he has the power of god the word of god and then he'll go for several issues just forgetting that he has superpowers entirely and that's that's the kind of thing that i like seeing and seeing in a comic so this is one of those and so i appreciate what's going on here i appreciate what's going on here a lot i think it's smart i'll say in that it's trying to do something with characterization and it is drawing a through line between a relationship in the past, a relationship in the present, 
and a possible future relationship. At least that's what mm-hmm. that's what he's beginnings, middles, and endings. Yes, you know. it, it. This is actually a really smart idea with a lot of parallelism. It does not work. It does not come together at all. It's a failure. But I will not fault Scott Lobdell for taking a swing and missing here. So even like the the Brian and and uh, Megan of this all, of, of all of this, I hate his version of Brian and Megan. But he's trying to do a thing. He's telling a story. This is this is not him just tossing some pieces <laughs> on the board. He's got an idea for who these characters are, and I just don't like them. And that's on me. That's me not liking mm. what he's doing. My 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 complaints up until this point have been a lot of him it's doing you nothing. having taste. Yes, yeah. but no, no, but no, but but see, but taste taste is ephemeral, right? My 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 yeah. complaint with Labdell up until this point has just been him. You know, what are you even doing? These people are just here. There's yeah, no story. Sure. There's no understanding. Like he has made a choice here there is an artistic choice as a writer that he has made that i do not agree with that is not the same as not making one so i'm trying to be uplifting and forward thinking and you know critique this for what it is my own personal tastes aside so that's good i think that it also tries to do some very complicated relationship things that a it's a time period that you can't really do that in a code approved marvel comic and b i don't think scott labdell knows how to anyway i think he's biting off a bit more than he can chew <laughs> with the with like what kinds of relationships are going on here but i do appreciate the attempt i appreciated the attempted super yeah. sex we both get doug going immediately to like yeah we can have yes. robot sex <laughs> and with, we also with, as, get as a group as a and it's and it's pretty group yeah. As a group, yeah. yeah and it's pretty explicit <laughs> yeah. and i'm like i i like that yeah. he's, you know they're trying to do something interesting yeah and it's i mean i'm in favor of that i yeah. also have complex feelings about the britannic and megan thing of yep. i can feel every bead of water on your body and i'm like oh but the execution <laughs> failed me a little bit there but i, w- I was definitely like oh he's I doing a thing I fully, I fully noted that in like as i was reading and i was like orgasm question mark like what um <laughs> <laughs> I don't, it was just such a yeah like it was a lot and maybe we can talk about this more like when we talk about Brian and Megan specifically but I'm not super familiar with them and I'm like are they interesting characters usually because um, Brian usually you, you, you said this word usually uh, what do you mean by that how far back I think that they were more interesting when, you know, Megan was shape-shifting into versions of them and we had, like, a a queer polycule than, like, they are currently. (laughs) But, but, you know, mileage will vary. They were interesting characters that were turned into 90s characters. That's that's what's going on here. They are trying to... They have decided that they are the avatar of 90s-ness is... And with with little explanation, like, what you got in this issue where they were, oh, I fell through time and I became somebody else. That's the most explanation yes. we've gotten of this. And I'm not exaggerating since it happened in issue 75. This is, yeah. the mo- this is the first time they've even addressed that he's being weird. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, we had like him change into this different character like off panel 13 issues ago. And this is the first time right. that they've addressed it. <laughs> yes. Oh wow! Like, okay. yeah. <laughs> when you said when you said you didn't know context, it's like no, there isn't any. This is this is yep, yeah. Nope. <laughs> We've been meandering for a while since Alan Davis left this book, <laughs> so that's why we're a little bit up today, I think, because I was like doing the notes and I was like, oh, there is like a thematic construction that relates right. to the title of this issue. That's right. so much more than we've had recently. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, Andrew, before we get into the Britannic and Megan of all this, I wanted to pick up your first impressions. How are you feeling this week? I'm having a hard time with this comic in the year 2022 because mm-hmm. 
Moira is a famous Nobel Prize winning scientist yeah. uh, who discovers that she's patient zero for an airborne virus. And mm-hmm. her response is to fuck off to Paris. <laughs> like, well, she was kidnapped. I mean, that's hard to read. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> a lot of people are going to die because of this. Yeah, but she did. Yeah. That was, that was, it's Chuck's fault, not her. She was kidnapped, to be fair. Yeah. You know. Okay, fair. I'm, I'm always quick to blame Chuck for everything. So, <laughs> you know, Moira did nothing wrong. It's not exactly the most responsible person historically. Right. I mean, this is also true. But yeah, definitely I had some feelings about the portrayal of Moira here and just like the like, oh, I can't do anything right. Oh, I'm not pretty. I oh, I tripped and party. fell in your lap. Yeah. <laughs> so I take your I take your feelings there about the portrayal of Moira. Not my favorite Moira um portrayal. But as I said, I wanted to get into the Britannic and Megan of all this. Mm-hmm. I figured we just organized today's episode around like the three kind of interrelated stories that we had. Yeah, the three couples. So like let's do Britannic and Megan first and talk about our mileage on this scene. So Brian, you already said that you didn't have a lot of context for this couple. As someone who's being dropped in here, I mean, <laughs> did you find this exchange between the characters interesting? Reading this comic, were these characters that you would like to see more of? I don't know. Um, <laughs> I, I've i encountered them a few times in other comics, and every time I do, I'm just kind of like, yeah, okay, that's, that's you know, Captain Britain, and that's Megan. I don't even, I don't know that she has a code name. I... Like, all I know is that, you know, he is Brian Braddock and was like uh, Betsy Braddock's brother. And like, that's pretty much the only context that I have for them. And I don't know that I need to see more of them after this issue. Um, (laughs) But I also like, I'm not one to... I'm not one to quit on things. Like if something, if I experience something one time and it's bad, I usually try to give it a second chance because I, I, you know, I think everything deserves two chances. So um, I would love to like start the series from the beginning um, just to try. Um, (laughs) But as far as this issue goes, yeah, their, their story was probably my least favorite of the three I had a lot of questions just kind of like you know I was I was like uh, did we get anything of this reestablishing of their bond like I, I think the one thing that bothered me about their section in particular was so two, there were two pencilers on this issue right yeah at least yeah and <laughs> some of the art I liked and, yeah, yeah. and and some of the art was let's say not as consistent and so particularly with their story arc I was like what is what is this <laughs> and and yeah like you said the mansplaining uh, of time the weird water orgasm it was um yeah probably probably least favorite for sure I mean I just kept thinking about and this is a context that you don't have Brian but that we certainly do and yes please do go back and read the the original run of Excalibur starting comics. with Sword of, Str- Sword of Strawn. Yeah, because those are amazing. Good That's comics, the reason yeah. we did this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, but anyway, yeah, because it really is similar to the scene where Brian, propo- well, that sort of storyline, it was a few different issues of Brian proposing to Megan on the beach. And when we talked about that comic, <laughs> drawn by Alan Davis, of course, and written by Alan Davis, we talked a lot about the gaziness of Brian there, you know, just at his absolute most beautiful in the tiny swim trunks drawn by Davis who's you know excellent with his sexy male characters and I just kept thinking about how different this was and how much that factored into the fact that I 
enjoyed this scene so much less. I mean, I hated Brian in that other scene too. As you'll recall, <laughs> that's the one where he does the proposal where he makes it all about him. And he's like, does the, Fix you me. know, rom-com thing of like, yeah, there's nothing good about me, Megan, but the good thing is you can fix me. And she's like, great. I love it. I love it. <laughs> but so, you know, still an asshole, but an in-character asshole. That's Brian Braddock. But like, again, the gaziness and the touchability of him there versus here where we have like that water orgasm page. The spectacle is all Megan. Brian's body is completely closed off, off panel. You know, we never see any of his skin in every pose here. His body is rendered awkwardly or just engaged with violence. And the difference was so striking in terms of my ability to kind mm-hmm. of invest in this romantic moment because I didn't like the dialogue or the setup of the of the Davis moment. Mm. And yet I think I said at the time, like, boy, the artwork's sure making making it hard for me to resist it though because it was just rendered so beautifully and with like such an equal opportunity exploitation to it as well like I could understand a little bit of what Megan sees in Brian if only because he was so jaw-droppingly beautiful and seemed quite vulnerable and accessible in his beauty as well which is completely the opposite of what we have here and just couldn't help comparing it to that earlier scene which it's riffing on I mean it's directly Mm -hmm. riffing on it with Brian punching the rocks and everything that's all taken from that earlier scene and yet boy (laughs) this is a lot different but I was curious about your thoughts about that Andrew and Mav because you're obviously familiar with that scene too yeah no I, I completely agree with you I think the execution is is wildly different but even though it's riffing on it for reasons I'm not I'm not super clear on other than mm-hmm. this is sort of like a touchstone of their relationship that Lobdell wants to reiterate it doesn't work for all the reasons you're saying and also the way he talks to her is yeah. very frustrating uh, and the way she's she's kind of just a, a cipher for him uh, in that scene which weirdly does kind of reiterate the proposal but in a much less human way um, and yeah I, I spent the entire time just deeply frustrated with Lovedell telling us that this is a love that transcends time Ooh, it's yeah, not there was a, a lot and <laughs> yeah and constantly <laughs> remembering that we don't have Rachel Summers in this book anymore because of this timeless love <laughs> that, that that's what she sacrificed yeah. herself for so no this yeah. scene just it, it wasn't working and i think the comparison that you point out is not in its favor i think it would have been a much more effective scene if it eliminated all references to what was in my eyes a better scene yeah i mean i've been asking the question throughout the podcast of like what megan sees in brian and this rendition of the relationship is taking away even the possibilities of what she might see in brian you know because at least in yeah. the proposal scene he admits vulnerability and you know it yeah. still makes it about himself but you know at least it's something but you know for it just to be like our love transcends time it's like well what was your love though like what was the nature of your love how is that coming across here with just this stiff emotionless guy who confesses he's a completely different person now than he was but because your souls are just bound in magic you're a couple i mean that's not compelling to us as readers Here's my um, reparative work on this uh, on this particular issue because that's why I promised I was going to do that. It's not compelling to us as readers, but here's my thoughts on it, and I and and where I said I, I feel like he's doing a thing, and I can at least appreciate it because before I felt like um, and I've said this on the show a lot. Labdell's problem with um, writing Excalibur, even going back to when he was the fill-in writer and Davis was the main writer, right? Labdell always yeah. thought that Captain Britain was the hero of the book and we were always like he's Mm -hmm. the least interesting person the difference is when labdell was the fill-in writer he was just there to you know do a job and collect a check now he's the writer of record and what labdell says needs to matter and none of us none of the four of us are reading this as labdell's primary 
audience. And I, I would argue that for, and in fact, I, I've argued this before, for the majority of comics, the the presumptive audience, um, it's superhero comics, I should say, for the majority of superhero comics, since their inception, the presumptive audience was a presumed cisgender, presumed heterosexual, 12 or 13 year old boy, white boy. That's who yeah. they are writing for. And from that perspective, Labdell is writing towards who he, he, who he believes his reader is. He is kind of putting out there that, look, we've got a strong guy who's into some science and love conquers all. That's the story here. And I think it I'm going to put very, very heavy air quotes around this. It works <laughs> in that there's an explanation here. There's an explanation for why Brian's back. Now, I don't buy into it because they're my least favorite relationship in this book. I don't see, we, you know, you just said, why is she even into him? Well, she's into him because he's smart and blonde and he's built like a linebacker. That's why. Because that's the dream. Like, that's that's the fantasy. The fantasy of the presumed 12-year-old, you know, straight white male is, hey, I can be the most handsome and the smartest and have the girl. And, you know, Megan has glowed up in her powers, too, because of your love. I'm a better person. I've gotten it. You know, I had to evolve, too. Like, everything about this is just, like, Mary suing Brian to be in the lead role in this book because that's what Scott thinks the reader wants because when Scott was a 12-year-old boy, that's what he would have wanted. Now, I was never a 12-year-old white boy, so it doesn't work for me. <laughs> you know, like, but that's what he's going for. And I kind of, in that he's going for that, I will say, you know, when Brian says, when he's doing his mansplaining of how time travel works, you know, to comic book people, and he says um, <laughs> he can no longer know, and then we could know as, a, as of knowing how many rocks are on the the shoreline and Megan says 20,097 not counting the fragments from your diagram that's some good writing I mean I'll actually give you give him that one I was like <laughs> okay he's doing something clever because he's showing that his version of Megan and his version of Brian sort of complete each other which is what he's always wanted that's why the proposals are the way they are like he wants them to be this idealized couple this I'm going to say Romeo and Juliet story but I mean that in the way of people who don't actually know what Romeo and Juliet's about but like when <laughs> <laughs> when, people use the, when people use that phrase, like he wants them to be these perfect two lovers who are absolutely meant for each other. So that's what he's writing. It's stupid because it's bad. <laughs> but, well. but 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 like but that's you know that's me having a different sensibility of taste than what the author is going for and i'm trying to it's christmas i'm being nice oh well you're being you're being very generous <laughs> yeah i mean i think just i mean from our perspective as people who've talked so much about megan and her performative femininity it is obviously very depressing to see her go from Absolutely. a character who potentially interrogated and critiqued that to just being a mirror of brian and we're being sold that as a good thing and like mm -hmm. boy <laughs> that's just certainly is like a reduction of what that character used to be in a decidedly misogynist way but it's what this is gonna sound really i know really it's what weird. he's going for i get in, it i get it in cells need books too uh, is oh that what boy. i mean is that what we're going to I mean, <laughs> oh god I mean, no i mean i like not everything has to be for me i he's not writing to no. me I, I i get it this is not this is not written for me but like that's who he's right that's who he's writing that moment for. He's writing that moment for people who think that Tarzan's a hero. <laughs> You know, yeah, you well, know, I mean, like, I, I don't disagree on that. Maybe I disagree that incels need comics too. <laughs> oh, everybody needs to read. Reading's important, Anna. It's Christmas. Everybody needs to read. Mm, wow. 
so generous <laughs> okay wow i hate to bring you in on the wake of that brian but did you have more comments about this scene um anything else before we move on to talking about some of these other relationships i guess in a in a similar vein of trying to do some reparative reading i the the one thing that i kind of found redeeming or at least maybe i was more interested in exploring in this section was Brian's inability to parse memories from what he saw in the time stream mm-hmm. um, and how that was kind of like could be interpreted as a symptom of his trauma and then just how trauma works throughout this issue with the other couples as well but yeah I definitely don't need to talk about that scene more um, so. <laughs> Fully okay, well, moving on. <laughs> I'm grateful that we're at least getting it addressed because yeah, it has yeah. been so long and like it does add add some complexity even if I'm not really happy with oh, how it turns horrible. out. I mean, and, I, I, just, yeah. I just want to make so for our listeners so that you understand. Oh, I, don't... I don't like this. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this is bad. I get it. It's all good. I have. It's all good. <laughs> But I have 40 more issues, episodes of this show to do (laughs) or something like that. 40 something. We've got a lot of show left (laughs) that I have to get through. So be on board because it's not going to get better. Hey, I I said I liked I said I liked the water droplet scene, which I legitimately do. That had a lot of sexual potential. I mean, I didn't like the visualization, but the the idea was certainly intriguing. Um, Anyway, okay, let's talk about some of this other stuff. Let's talk about uh, (laughs) Kitty Pride and her sexy robot friend. So we we had in a previous issue kitty of course being very mean to doug Locke, which we talked about at that time she's been coming around on robots for two issues now and we're seeing them have a little discussion here so one of the things I just want, it's like there was at least one line in here that was like directly lifted from the star trek episode where geordie laforge has to like or has to takes it upon himself to uh teach a borg how to be human and i was like thought that was fun. it brought back memories for me one of my best girlfriends when i was a teenager had a crush on the Borg actor guy from that episode which is such a funny like (laughs) weird nerd teenage girl thing I totally remember like we looked him up and she had like a picture of him in her locker because she was like he was so cute though he had to learn about humanity and I was like yeah we were nerds that makes sense (laughs) so I mean maybe this would have hit us at that age I'm not sure but um Brian what was your kind of mileage on this on this kitty and Doug Lock scene did did this one appeal to you a little bit more did anything interest you about this interaction This one appealed to me more because I like Kitty. It definitely, it's been so long since I've watched any Star Trek, but because I've watched it more recently, uh, this reminded me of the show The Orville, uh, specifically like the doc, uh, Dr. Claire and her relationship with Isaac, who is, you know, like a robot. But I, <laughs> it was hard for me to remember because I was like, did, did Kitty and Doug date? Like I couldn't, and then <laughs> I, you know, I had to, I had to look it up and I was like, oh no, like, I guess he was more into her than she was into him. And yeah. I will say what I got most out of this scene, and it's because I'm currently writing a chapter for my dissertation about uh, Kitty at like a different point in time, but um, I understood the queer like subtext of the character mm-hmm. from this issue uh, specifically in that one scene where she's like so you boys must be just passing through which is like a cheesy joke loved it but like <laughs> she's doing yeah. this power stance and her you know she's got the broad shoulders and the great hair and um, and then on the next page like just her thigh looks like crazy like massive as she kicks the guy in the face and I'm just like I get it I get why people read into Kitty as queer um, <laughs> from the <laughs> 
these panels. And then it, it also made me start thinking about like, oh, if he if he's Douglock at this point, like where I, where are we in like Marvel's timeline? And I realized that um, it was around like the Phalanx Covenant stuff. Mm-hmm. And so Generation X would be starting soon. So I was like, oh, awesome. You know, I was excited that, you know, it was at that point of things. Yeah, we're going to be talking about more Phalanx Covenant uh, next time. What was your kind of mileage on kind of the exchanges between Doug Locke and Kitty here? I don't know. I mean, were you sold on kind of this like budding new relationship between this new version of Doug and this familiar version of Kitty? I Because I was kind of, you know, I didn't really have the context. I wasn't really yeah. sure what they were trying to go for on yeah. my first reading, um, if it was meant to be romantic or not. When I did have more context, I, you know, I realized, you know, that she was trying to just get this relationship back that she had with Doug as, you know, her friendship. I wasn't 100% sold on it, but I did find, you know, some moments between them amusing. Like when he asked if unconscious humans are often used as seats or yeah. um, <laughs> there, there were like moments that I was like, this is, you know, this is, it's cute. It's funny. Um, I don't, I don't know that it achieved what like Lobdell was trying to achieve, but yeah, it, I think it did it better at least than Brian and Megan. <laughs> I mean, yeah, the, the thing that if I'm going to do some reparative reading on that scene, the thing that I want to like about it is that kind of uh, idea that they're connecting through their shared strangeness, you know, their mutantness, but their outsiderness. I mean, you brought up the queer subtext of Kitty. I mean, in some ways, she's teaching Douglock how to understand people. But in another way, she's so clearly outside and separate from the people that they're around as well. I mean, through the bar fight scene where, you know... <laughs> she phases and this guy puts his fist through her and through as you mentioned sort of her her kind of butch presentation in that scene we might say so to me there was like the basis for there to be a relationship there that again wasn't necessarily a romantic relationship which was something that I actually liked about it and you know I did like that he went straight to to group robo sex techno organic sex I mean you know in some (laughs) ways that's like a cheap 90s joke but in other ways that is like one of the interesting possibilities of this version of Doug Locke's embodiment so I wasn't like mad at it, but I don't know, Andrew. What was your what was your mileage on it? Um, I, I still find Kitty's lack of compassion alienating, but yeah. in terms of the dynamic between the two of them, I, I like the one element of the scene where Kitty's begging him to try, and, mm-hmm. and he does this brooding, intense, destructive self reflection, and then says, "Is that what you wanted?" Because that's that's a nice bit of auto criticism, first of all, for the kind of world that Kitty occupies. But it's also, um, I, I think it's a nice dynamic between the two of them. The idea that Doug Lock doesn't really know what pleases her to you know paraphrase dr manhattan but is trying but he's too far removed to do it sincerely um so i think that kind of emphasizes the um um, the fundamental fourth discontinuity as it's called between um human and machine that's unfolding here and i like that idea that doug Locke is just like trying to satisfy her what do you want from me kind of thing I'll, i'll do whatever you want um but the problem is of course what she wants is the sincere reaction so they're kind of on different pages and i think there's something compelling about that yeah i agree and i mean that ends up being what draws them together in some ways you know her realizing the unfairness of her expectations is an important moment of character growth in theory i think the problem that we might have with it is the fact that this doesn't seem like a lesson kitty would have to learn because we did some backsliding with her character to get here but still the scene taken on its own it was the best kitty scene we've had for a while i would say which is not saying much because she hasn't been great lately (laughs) but still still i definitely enjoyed the like beating 
lighting up the the thug scene. She got some good dynamic movement there, and I love the outfit as well. But yeah, Mav, what were your thoughts? Good puns. Yeah. Um, about the same. I'm maybe a little easier on Kitty and her relationship with Doug Lock than you guys are because, and this is not just me doing the bit for the, for the, for today's show. As far as Kitty goes, I think it's really easy to be an accepting person who wants you know who wants to accept transhuman characters as real who wants everything to be fine and this is fine up until it's in your face up until the person who you're trying to accept literally has your dead best friend's face no matter how good a person she is i have never had the situation where a dead friend or relative is now staring at me and asking me to call them by a different name and that's got to be a hard you know it's a conceptually complicated situation so i'm accepting of the weirdness of it not that i think it's necessarily been written the best but but i'm accepting of the weirdness of the concept to where i want it to be something she's showing doug lock these pictures of i think it's interesting it's her and rain and warlock and sam sam whatever but you know rain who doug eventually actually does end up with at least at that point and warlock who is also part of doug lock but like we're just ignoring that because kitty wants doug so much she wants doug but there's also hinted at yeah there's hinted it was that earlier in the in the series when doug first dies kitty's got some weird guilt issues because she just wanted to be friends and she knows doug liked her and that's hard right like uh, she was a teenage girl at the time and you know doug represents the kid at home reading the book who's like if i were if i were in this comic i'd be dating kitty and doug is in the comic so he thinks he should be dating kitty and kitty likes the head football player like that's doug's life right but then he dies and now kitty gets to feel guilty about it for the rest of her life except for he comes back so that's a weirdness that i like the intricacy of that story and i think her being out of character is sort of i don't know i'm not gonna say it's good it's understandable it's it's the you know it's the person who wants to be an ally to gay people until their boyfriend is the one who's gay (laughs) you know like and and that's not that's not inconsistent for kitty i mean she has had moments like this in the past you know her acceptance has been a learning journey for her yes so I think that's actually some good writing. I have trouble with the art in this section because even more so than the Brian, Megan and Chuck Moira sections, the art seems to be inconsistent from panel to panel. And there are two pencilers and three anchors of record. I have a sneaking suspicion there might have been even more than that on this book because there are some wildly inconsistent artwork marvel used to do this thing where they there there was one point where they would credit people as manny hands <laughs> many hands would be like the, mm-hmm. the artisan mm-hmm. and this really feels like that this feels like we got a deadline it's tomorrow everybody draw a panel it's yeah. sloppy in places to where like i like i just don't know what's happening from segment to segment so that pulled me out of it but um i don't have a lot of negative things to say about at least the attempt it's not necessarily where i would have gone with it but much more so than the megan section the megan and brian section this works i i think i mean i know yeah i yeah, I, I'm like, not in disagreement there. Yeah. yeah. And the and the, se- and the sex stuff is neat too. Also, just because if um if we believe that Doug is in there somewhere and Doug is trying to, you know, Doug Locke is trying to be its his own entity, but he's got bits of Doug there, Doug would have been horny for Kitty. 
right so like <laughs> like that's who doug was so oh can i help all right well i guess we'll have sex now like i mean he would doug would have never put it that way because doug had more social awareness than warlock did but warlock would have put it that way and doug would have been so it's got bits of their personality yeah and i mean this might lead us into the charles and moira thing too that i think i did find it interesting for gender reasons too in the sense that in a lot of genre fiction like female robots are like sexual or at least sexy whereas male robots often aren't they're often kind mm-hmm. of safely asexual or desexualized so i sort of liked him going straight to that because even though it can be written off as a dumb joke it's like well he's not you know safely desexualized like this is a robot that's like well i'll do whatever with my body why would it be a concern of mine my values aren't the same as yours and it's like oh that sort of gets to that complaint that we've been having about oh robots always want to be human and it's like Mm -hmm. i really always enjoy that more radical possibility of maybe they don't want to be human maybe they have their own ways of doing things and experiencing pleasure and being embodied and i'm putting way too much on this scene i don't think the scene meant to go to all those interesting places but still having that possibility teased at all I'm like, I'm desperate for these scraps of meaningful, (laughs) (laughs) interesting super sex. So I was like, I was here for it. Well, let's talk about Charles and Moira. And I'm definitely Mm. interested to hear more of your thoughts about this section, Brian, because, you know, you mentioned sexuality and disability, and that's a really interesting context to bring to this scene in terms of the presentation of Charles. So yeah, was there anything that sort of interested you or intrigued you about this section, Brian? Yeah, I I thought that this section had a lot of, and uh, I'll use, I'll use quotes, great lines. And I'm not Mm -hmm. sure if they actually are great or if I just like bad things. Um, (laughs) I'm very easily swayed, as I said earlier, like love, love romantic movies, rom-coms, the whole like... acquaintances or you know friends or old flames finding each other again at a different time in their lives uh like when harry met sally the mindy project uh, gilmore girls i don't know i um i'm a sucker for those so <laughs> the the part of me that wants to enjoy media and not think like to just turn my brain off was like i love this section it's great the part Aww. of me that like has to you know think um (laughs) was reading this and was kind of like why like you said earlier why was moira acting this way um it was weird that charles was just kind of invading people's minds to make them think about you know that moira was princess diana of all people instead of (laughs) um you know just that she was wearing a different outfit which seems like it would have been easier i don't know Um, (laughs) he's done it before he's done that trick before he does it all the time why is oh god sorry i'm and yeah i I, (laughs) it's it's weird too though because i was um i don't know i was they they mentioned princess diana and like oh i think she's in new york and i was just curious and i was like oh was she in new york at the time so i was you know i did a little research um and she didn't visit new york before this comic but she did in november or october of 1994 and had lunch with hillary clinton and it was amid like the scandalous news of prince charles's affair with camilla but because you know, they're talking about the legacy virus and Mora being patient zero. It made me think of Princess Diana's earlier trip to the States um, when she visited yeah. uh, New York in 1989 and went to the, the AIDS ward and was uh, talking with AIDS patients and hugging them too. And I, again, like fell down a Google rabbit hole and found like, there was one article from AP News with the headline, Princess Diana cuddles AIDS babies. And I was like, that's 
a really gross uh, way to phrase that. Um, but uh, yeah, I I really liked the romance in this section. I liked the line at the end where Charles is like, but some of the best memories of our lives, is it wrong to relive them just for a day? And like me, I'm all like swoon, especially Aww. Charles in that like black sweater and those pants. Yeah, and like, yeah. I was just like, okay, Charles, I see you. Um, <laughs> which again, like, I'm glad that like, you know, they are like romanticizing and sexualizing this character with a disability. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, more res- response to that saying like, wrong, it was magnificent fun. I cannot think of anything I needed more than a trip to Paris and the knowledge that come what may, there's a place in our hearts where we're still in love and that's the way it will be forever. Um, and then she says something about forever, like being closer than she thinks or, but yeah, I don't know. I, I, I liked them getting lost in their memories for a bit. Although earlier in this podcast, you mentioned something about him like currently dating a bird lady and having a hall pass. So maybe, maybe I don't love it now. He's, he's, he's the official consort of Princess Lalandra, Empress of the Shi'ar. Uh, but right. And they had a psychic rapport with each other, which makes okay, yeah. she felt it when Moira sat in his lap. Maybe she's into it. Maybe that is, I mean, we don't know if they're exclusive. I don't know. It's not the boundaries of it or not. I'm sure you want to talk about it, Mav. Well, okay. So Andrew, I want to hear what Andrew has to say, because you, you made the joke in the intro about like there he's in, he's in a, allegedly monogamous relationship with the queen bird lady which the only thing that fixes this for me is uh, if, if it's not allegedly monogamous because we've not had a lot of Lalandra since Chuck got back from Shire space I went back and I checked the Marvel chronology and she you know w- we've seen her appear in Excalibur but that's mostly it and it's not really referencing their relationship at least not at this point I also feel similarly about Moira and Sean, uh, Banshee. Soon, they're going to absolutely be broke. Well, soon she's going to be, spoilers, she's going to be dead. But, um, but, like, there's, um, it's unclear what anybody's relationship status is. We've not seen anybody break up. Chuck and Lelandra are explicitly not married. He's the consort. Is he the consort for, uh, royal political reasons? The reason Camilla wasn't, uh, Charles's queen or prince she was the consort for a long time is that why but it, it is an, it is implied very much so that he has a you know position as her official mate and that it's loving and how exclusive that is has never been clear so this gets way better for me if there's one mention even one mention of Lilandra and Sean in this book yeah and yeah. and either either way either of a look you know neither of us are in exclusive relationships or look we can't be together because you are you are you know you're with Sean I'm with Lalandra so we can't we can't do this or you know I'm I know you're with Sean and we're with and and I'm with Lalandra but I'm horny right now so let's just not tell them any of those work right like if if I can see that they they they're they know they're cheating or that it's not cheating like anything but as it is it feels like you want me to invest in this in this past relationship but you haven't you being Labdell hasn't done the homework to know what their current relationship statuses and i don't know and i i feel Mm. like he must have he must know that lalandra and chuck are together but the book doesn't it doesn't give me enough for me to under for me to understand what's going on am i making a pro poly statement am i making a ugly cheating statement i i I don't know so it's my least favorite thing in this book you know this 
questionable book. That's the one where I'm like, I don't know how to repair it because I don't know where I don't know what he wants me to feel to even feel it. Right. I was there is something, you know, queer kind of non heteronormative in not addressing it, which mm-hmm. I think is like a nice thing. Um, but also it is weird that they just don't mention their partners at all. Yeah, yeah. Because again, like I'm all for like seeing the Charles and Lelander relationship as you know, quote unquote non conventional. I mean, she's an alien bird lady. Why would she have the same values as us humans? But yeah, to have it not addressed. Millions of like a million light years away who's got other business. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, I perfectly so the inhumans, that's their storyline right now in Marvel Comics is the inhumans are black bolts got like seven wives and that's just how it is and mm-hmm. and and it's fine it, you know they all know because that's the story right now so i'm okay with that but tell me tell me something anything yeah i know but yeah i take brian's point too about the like i mean as much as like uh so the story with mara the thing that it did is that in order to situate like the badass female character within a romantic narrative, writers often do this thing where they feminize them to make that narrative feel believable. But in feminizing them, they reduce their character to stereotypes of femininity because it's the only way that they can imagine situating a woman within that space. I think I summed that mm. up pretty well. But um, <laughs> I was like, can I sum this up in like two seconds? But so that would be like my <laughs> issue with it because she feels like she's out of character here in order to satisfy the romantic tropes and I think that's unfortunate because I don't think she had to be. I think we could have had the same story with them not doing that to her but I you know (laughs) this isn't a writer that I associate with that capacity so I understand it but I definitely take Brian's point on Charles's snazzy black outfit and it's funny because he makes the (laughs) comment about like clothes who cares about clothes I was like well you clearly do Charles come on (laughs) anyway Andrew I know you've always got lots of thoughts about Moira so what was your mileage so yeah no I I completely agree with everything that that everyone has said so far uh, about it in terms of there's some character inconsistencies and stuff like that um I've written separate Claremont run threads on the importance of of Charles having a libido and especially Mm -hmm. the importance of Moira having a libido Mm -hmm. uh, as a characterization of the um um, scientist figure and Charles is not just disability it's also the mentor figure right the idea of the gross old person still has sex yeah. I, I think that's that's huge that, that that's actually how claremont found his character um, um from the outset so I, I like the the physical elements of the relationship I, I i like the way that we're able to build a lot of sexual tension around it and these two characters who i think when we talk about mav's prototypical vision of what the reader was at the time i don't think they'd want to read a story about charles and moira making out in paris like that's not on their mm-hmm. agenda as teenagers but the story works in spite of that i think but again the, for me the problems exactly as anna mentioned moira's badly out of character um and some of the elements of the dynamic are just kind of cliche um where they could be more clever even though there are some really good pieces to the dialogue so it's a complete mixed bag for me but this is definitely a situation where i like what labdell was trying to do right um i just don't think it's it's executed well well it's like charles is pretty womaning moira (laughs) and i'm like yeah (laughs) is that moira's story I mean, I don't not a, really a fan of that trope anyway. But I mean, especially for this dynamic between these characters, it's an odd fit. Part part of the enjoyment for me was to see which cliche they would jump to next. Yeah, though. yeah. Um, just like seeing which beats they would hit in those like terrible rom coms, and you know, him saying the waiter thought that she was uh, mm-hmm. beautiful, and like, <laughs> and then you know her being like oh so clumsy and like tripping into his lap like 
like every every one of those dumb moments i was like yes yes it's all leading up to this kiss and the kiss panel loved it but yeah it was it's ridiculous um (laughs) how does she trip it he's pushing his chair but she trips in front of him <laughs> it was a weird trip. It was very manufactured. This tiny stone just like fells her like a giant oak. <laughs> so good. It also makes you wonder, like, because Charles is controlling so much of the situation, like oh. you know, that he's whisked her away, he's he's uh controlling the people's oh. thoughts in the cafe to see her as Princess Diana. Like, how much is he like how much is he manufacturing this? Like, is he creating these really tired romantic cliches? Like, did he trip her? Um, I don't know. It's and that that's just me questions. coming from the perspective of like Charles not always being a great person. <laughs> Yes, yes, Usually he is not. a jerk, as has been established. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> no, yeah, that's true. That is totally true. That raises like a lot of in- like I problematic but interesting questions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I did want to underline again though that you know the importance of Charles being presented as sexual here because that really stood out to me too, and the presentation of disability stood out to me in terms of there's no disguising, you know, that he has a disability. Like he doesn't do some mental image to picture himself as not in a wheelchair or anything like that. The wheelchair is so much a part of all of these scenes. It is like large. It is visible. He is shown moving in it, and yet that's not ever presented as an obstacle to their romance either and that presentation was really refreshing I mean again that's a little bit of one of those low bar things just because of our expectations for how badly disability is so often portrayed perhaps especially like male characters who are in wheelchairs which tropishly gets associated with feminization and impotence so like it is very unusual to have a character you know for all the reasons that we already talked about sexualized in this way so I did find that really refreshing about it that did bring some some joy to my heart for sure even (laughs) if I didn't always love the Moira of it all but especially in 1994 like yeah no absolutely credit where credit's due I did like that aspect of it um all right let's move to some final thoughts give everybody a chance to highlight something that we didn't get a chance to talk about I'll start with you Andrew um anything that we didn't get a chance that you want to make sure we touch on before we go uh it's a very small thing but um when Doug Locke is coming back and talking to Kitty he, he mentions specifically he, he reflects upon his past relationship with Zero uh, and how that was his source of companionship that was his, his link to um, any kind of let's call it humanity even though I shouldn't use that word here I thought that was a nice touch a, a good way to build up that relationship retroactively and to again cast zero in that role of um, mentor which maybe the Douglock Chronicles kind of forced into existence a little bit pushed a little bit harder than the story maybe justified but I think there's some good reparative work being done here all right fair enough Mav what were your final thoughts about this one well I've been I've been cheery most of the episodes so now I just want to it's a it's a problem <laughs> oh, that no. I just don't understand Dan, I want to direct you direct you to page 12 where where Brian is um Brian and Megan are are walking along the beach and or not the beach you know the rock formations and and then Brian takes it upon himself to punch a rock in order to draw a timeline map and it's the worst <laughs> timeline map ever it's like like he's just like imagine Literally. imagine a timeline a timeline which is this line and then there's another line here he's done two lines oh there's two lines got it but don't 
I don't get what he actually did here. So here's my problem with it. In the first yeah. panel, he punches some rocks. Okay. And I get, say, sure, you're super strong. You can bust some rocks. But why? Because then he just digs his finger into a rock that is pre-punched. I don't know where he, like, <laughs> like. Like, other than the fact that it's kind of neat to draw a dynamic man, like, punching a rock, like, I, I, like, I don't know what's going on. And it's the one thing where I'm just, where I, st I stared at this, and I don't remember, I don't remember what I thought when I read this the first time, you know, 25 years ago, uh, 20, 28 years ago. But, like, this time, I'm going, what are they going for here? <laughs> like, I don't understand, no. like, functionally, I just, I can't place this in space. He's punched the rock and shattered it, but then that, there's no hole, so then he just kind of, I'm going to do the finger draw in the rock, and I, I don't know what's going on. Oh, look, there's Megan's boobs. Don't worry about it. I know. I know. Well, it's like he's trying to give this like super science explanation or something, which is just it's a dumb explanation anyway, but like doing it in the most caveman way possible. Yeah. And then she's sitting on the rock like Venus de Milo going, oh, Brian, so impressive. And you're like, oh, my God, what is this relationship? <laughs> yeah, I don't really have any final thoughts. There was a little Superman cameo in the in the Paris section uh, in the sort of border of one of the panels. Noticed that as I was rereading it. But yeah, I'll I'll cede my final final thoughts to brian brian anything that you wanted to talk about that we didn't get a chance to talk about I, th I think just because where i'm at in my own dissertation research i feel like there's a lot that you could look at from like a trauma perspective in this issue is it is it worth uh looking at it in this issue i don't know but i think that you could one moment that i really kind of it made me laugh was um when the the one guy that kitty beats up was like he called her a sprite and she's like i haven't gone by that name and oh. by the name sprite in years um and that just kind of made me lol but um mm -hmm. yeah other than that no no final thoughts here <laughs> i mean it did bother me that like they beat up this poor flower seller and then kitty doesn't help them like what happened to the flower seller she just like beats up the guys and sits on them and i was like is is the old lady okay could you make sure because i was kind of upset by that moment of violence i would have liked to be reassured you know i'm sure she's fine didn't, didn't he also tell the flower seller like after she said like what am i gonna sell and didn't he say to like sell her body yes did, it yeah. was pretty upsetting actually that's why i yeah, wanted some reassurance yeah. <laughs> that she was okay um, yeah it would have been nice if kitty had done something there <laughs> <laughs> it would have been it would have been <laughs> i was not born to live a man's life but to be the stuff of future memory. The fellowship was a brief beginning, a fair time that cannot be forgotten. And because it will not be forgotten, that fair time may come again. Let's wrap it up. No sword strokes letters page this week again. We'll get back to it at some point. So we will just wrap things up there. Other than to say, Brian, thank you so much for jumping in to join us. And of course, before we go, we need to remind our lovely listeners of where they can find you and what you get up to. If you would like people to find you online, whereabouts can they find you and what work or projects past or upcoming or anything else would you like people to look out for? Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Um, my, my website is nerdbove 
Bove, N-E-R-D-B-O-V-E.com. And then my handle on all of my social media is nerdbove. I'm at Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr. I have a hive, but I haven't been able to sign back into it um, (laughs) because of that whole mess. Um, I am currently working... I'm currently working on a chapter of my dissertation that is about Kitty, actually, and it's looking at the traumatization and commodification of queer women in Joss Whedon's Astonishing X-Men through uh, using Jasper K. Poir's terrorist assemblages. I'm examining Kitty as the queer patriot and Danger as the queer terrorist um, and kind of talking about how they are two sides of the same coin. Other than that, I'm really excited about, um, I have a chapter in the forthcoming Futures of Cartoons Past, the cultural yes. politics of X-Men, the animated series. Um, that's from the University Press of Mississippi, and it's edited by the amazing um, Jeremy Carnes, Margaret Galvin, and Nick Miller. Um, and my chapter in that is another critical comic about the Savage Land and Professor X and Magneto, and the Savage Land is kind of like a queer and queering space. So yeah, those are that's me. <laughs> awesome. We've had Margaret and Nick on the podcast before, and I'm hoping to get Jeremy, if he's not too busy, maybe even to talk about Forge with us in the next episode. We will see. But um, yeah, we're all looking forward to the X-Men animated series book. And yeah, Brian, just thank you so much again for joining us. It was just such a pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, I was so happy to be here. So next, we are being dragged kicking and screaming into the Phalanx Covenant crossover, discussing the bafflingly titled Excalibur number 82, Life Song bracket part three close bracket the light of a tainted dawn (laughs) that's the title forge is in it and uh we're gonna hopefully talk about him a little bit along with his favorite life coach kurt wagner making his epic return with some very voluptuous new hair eager to talk about that in the meantime if you liked what you heard please follow us like and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it or watching it don't forget to check out our fabulous youtube videos which we've done for many of our episodes which you can find via our website or the vox podcast youtube channel as always if you want to chat with us about excalibur or pictures yourself as a guest for a future episode let us know you can reach out via our website at gosh golly wow where we've got some fun extras and via twitter at gosh golly wow where we post daily pages from whatever issue we're reading that week and more fun extras thank you andrew and mav for another amazing episode thank you brian for surveying the sun with us thank you all for listening and a special thanks to maximilian of Thoughtform music for a truly epic theme song play us out i'm very proud of that sand river pun that was one of my yep. better ones <laughs> 